Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. With those words, 13 British colonies became the United States of America. Thomas Jefferson penned the first draft, his old friend John Adams revised it, and on July 4, 1776, the final version was sent to the printer. The Founding Fathers waited with bated breath for the response. What would their new nation become? What glorious future would dawn over the shores of the Atlantic? A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? The truth is, the founders were just as petty and conniving as any politicians that came after them. In fact, they might have even been worse. Just two decades after they signed the Declaration of Independence, the noble allies Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had become bitter enemies. Their electoral battle in 1800 was so vicious, it brought the brand new nation to the brink of collapse. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In the lead-up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the 54 biggest scandals in U.S. history. Every week until November 3, 2020, we'll look at how each of these moments shaped American politics and culture and what we can learn from the failures of the past. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. To kick off our countdown, we're going back to the first presidential election scandal in U.S. history. Scandal number 54, the 1800 matchup between sitting President John Adams and his own vice president, Thomas Jefferson. In his farewell address in 1796, President George Washington warned that partisanship was truly their worst enemy. If left unchecked, party divisions would lead the nation to ruin. The only way to safeguard our liberty was to set aside our rivalries and work together. But all of that went out the window the minute he left office. In 1796, the first contested election in U.S. history, Washington's vice president, John Adams, ran against his secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson. Adams won, and Jefferson, as the runner-up, became vice president. The problem with that? They were absolute political enemies. At the time, there weren't any official political parties, but there were two distinct groups the Federalists and the Republicans. The Federalists wanted a strong central government, taxes, banks, foreign trade, a big defense budget, national unity over state sovereignty. The real power player in this group was Alexander Hamilton, the former Secretary of the Treasury. But Hamilton's financial policies were so controversial, he would never hold elected office again. So the public face of the Federalist Party was John Adams. Adams was respected as a statesman, but as a person, he had a reputation for being vain, temperamental, and graceless. Among the Federalists, he was tolerated, if not necessarily loved. But on the other side of the aisle were the Republicans. This faction wanted a more hands-off approach. No taxes, states' rights, populism, agriculture. Most of them were either poor southern farmers who hated the northern elites, or rich planters who wanted to hold on to their slaves. Their leader, Thomas Jefferson, fell into the second camp. Jefferson was his rival's perfect opposite. Adams was short and round. Jefferson was tall and thin. French diplomats had once compared them to a cannonball and a candlestick. Adams was pompous. Jefferson was very quiet, very stoic, and fashioned himself a humble man of the people. And where Adams was clumsy and hot-tempered, Jefferson was a master manipulator. For the next four years, the two enemies would have to serve side by side as president and vice president. But in 1800, there would be a rematch, and Jefferson wasn't going to lose again. The ink on the Constitution was still drying, and the gloves were already off. The first item on VP Jefferson's agenda in early 1797 was holding secret talks with the French consul. 
Jefferson promised that Adams would only serve one term, so it wasn't worth trying to work with him. Adams was about to send an American envoy to Paris, and Jefferson advised his French buddies to, quote, drag out the negotiations at length and mollify them by the urbanity of the proceedings. By all accounts, the French listened. Adams sent his envoy in 1797, and after a long and frustrating delay by the Parisians, they came back to the States empty-handed. Adams was furious. The conflict ballooned until he threatened to start a full-blown war with France. The Republicans accused Adams of incompetence and warmongering. In response, the Federalists accused them of stoking dissent and siding with the French over their own president. The Adams era was already mired in scandal and drama, and no one had any idea that Jefferson's secret meetings had started it all. Jefferson's secret weapon was a close relationship with the press. He never publicly criticized his opponents. Instead, he hired hatchet men to do the dirty work for him. Nearly every newspaper at the time had a partisan slant. And with the slow pace of the National Postal Service, misquotes and flat-out lies could make their way around the country before anyone got the chance to correct them. No one knew this better than James Thompson Callender. Unlike most of the journalists in the Capitol, Callender was no partisan hack. He didn't consider himself either a Federalist or a Republican. He had only one guiding principle, power corrupts. But for the time being, the Federalists had the power, so they were enemy number one. In June of 1797, Callender made the acquaintance of Vice President Thomas Jefferson at a print shop in Philadelphia. Just a week later, he published a set of documents that were last seen in Jefferson's possession. Those documents were proof that Alexander Hamilton, a leader of the Federalists, was being blackmailed and extorted by his secret mistress's husband. Hamilton was left sweeping up the shattered pieces of his reputation and his marriage. Meanwhile, President Adams, the only other prominent Federalist, was parading around like a lunatic, threatening a war with France. The Federalist press struggled to save face, but they were outmatched. The Republicans had organized a nationwide media machine full of writers like James Callender who were paid under the table to scandalize their opponents. But the Federalists had something even better a majority in Congress. In June and July of 1798, in the very last weeks of the summer session, Congress passed a set of four laws known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. They were aimed at shutting down the Republicans before the next election could even begin. Immigrants tended to vote Republican, so the Naturalization Act increased the residency requirement for citizenship from five to 14 years. The Alien Enemies Act allowed the president to arrest and deport any foreigners from enemy nations. And the Alien Friends Act allowed the president to deport any foreign citizen who was vaguely considered dangerous. 
But the crown jewel was the Sedition Act. This law made it illegal to write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing against the government or the president. Bad-mouthing John Adams was now a crime punishable by two years in prison and a fine of up to $5,000, worth over $104,000 today. Notably, the law didn't say anything about criticizing the vice president because the vice president was Thomas Jefferson. Republican lawmakers, including James Madison, author of the Bill of Rights, argued that the Sedition Act was a violation of the newly minted First Amendment. But legality didn't matter. The Federalists controlled every branch of the national government. And on July 14, 1798, the Federalist President Adams signed the Sedition Act into law. It would be effective until March 3, 1801, the very last day of his term. We'll look at Jefferson's response to the Sedition Act right after this. Now, back to the story. In July of 1798, Luther Baldwin was having a drink at his neighborhood tavern in Newark, New Jersey. It had been a long day, steering his garbage dinghy across the shoreline, hauling trash out of the yellow fever-ridden streets. And the crowd outside was so loud, he could hardly hear himself think. President John Adams was passing through on his way home from the Capitol. His supporters had lined the streets to catch a glimpse of him. And now, a row of cannons were giving the man a 16-gun salute. One cannon blasted off prematurely. Luther's friend quipped, There goes the president. They are firing at his ass. Luther shot back, I don't care if they fired through his ass. The tavern's owner overheard him. He reported it to the police, and Luther was arrested for speaking seditious words intending to defame the president. He was one of the first people arrested under the Sedition Act, and he wouldn't be the last. Dozens of writers, politicians, and random bystanders were indicted for trash-talking John Adams, most of them in the North where Federalists held power. But the Republican South wasn't totally safe either. Federalist leader Alexander Hamilton, who'd recently become Inspector General of the military, was building up the army, presumably in case the war with France ever materialized. But rumors spread that he was actually planning to invade the South and carry out the Sedition Act by force. If he wanted a civil war, the Republicans were ready to go. Jefferson and his ally James Madison were already drafting their response, the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. There was still some confusion about how much power the federal government actually had. The Federalists were testing the limits by saying that Congress could do whatever it wanted as long as the Constitution didn't expressly forbid it. Jefferson and Madison pushed the boundaries in the other direction, arguing that if the Constitution doesn't specifically mention it, the federal government doesn't have the power to do it. And if Congress did craft a law that went beyond their mandate, the states could simply refuse to enforce it. Legally, this was tricky, 
because the states technically don't enforce federal laws in the first place. The only real way to prevent the law from being enforced would be to meet the federal circuit justices at the border and physically stop them from coming into the state. So what the resolutions effectively said was, if Hamilton wants to march his army into the great Commonwealth of Virginia, we'll be right there to meet him. When the resolutions were submitted in November 1798, the result was absolute chaos. The Pennsylvania House of Representatives called it an attempt to destroy the very existence of our government. New Hampshire drafted a counter-resolution promising to defend the Constitution against every aggression, either foreign or domestic. And true to form, Hamilton made plans to shore up the military even further and, in his own words, put Virginia to the test of resistance. He'd taken the bait. Adams and Hamilton were political allies, but on a personal level, they hated each other. Adams had suspected early on that his cabinet was secretly taking orders from Hamilton, and now he was worried that the deep state shadow government was plotting some sort of military coup. Until now, Adams had been blazing a warpath with France. But a war would mean more resources for Hamilton's army. He began to fear that this rift with France was all part of a conspiracy cooked up by his puppet advisors. So on February 18, 1799, President Adams made a surprise announcement without consulting anyone else in the government. He was sending an envoy to Paris to smooth over relations and restore peace. The sudden, unexplained 180 was proof that Adams had lost it. It was as if George W. Bush had signed a peace treaty with Al-Qaeda without telling any of his advisors beforehand. One Federalist in Congress declared a total loss of confidence in the president. Another said Adams would never recover from the wound he gave himself. Jefferson kept stoking the flames. This was all according to plan. In February 1799, he wrote to Madison, This summer is the season for systematic energies and sacrifices. The engine is the press. Every man must lay his purse and pen under contribution. Jefferson still had an ace up his sleeve, James Callender. For the past year, Callender had been squirreled away in Virginia, working on a 200-page pamphlet titled The Prospect Before Us. It was half political treatise, half character assassination, and perfectly engineered to cause an uproar. A few excerpts. Adams was a gross hypocrite, one of the most egregious fools upon the continent, a hideous hermaphroditical character with neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. Future historians will wonder why America elected a president incapable of attracting either tenderness or esteem. Of course, Jefferson read drafts of the work in progress, and he paid Calendar for his troubles. They were both perfectly aware that the journalist would be arrested the minute the pamphlet hit the shelves. But that was the point. A well-choreographed courtroom drama was exactly what the campaign needed. 
When the prospect before us was published in February 1800, Callender sent a complimentary copy to John Adams. He was promptly arrested and his trial was set for June, just before election season. The defense had their work cut out for them. To exonerate Callender, they'd have to prove that the statements made in the prospect before us were not false, scandalous, or malicious. As defense lawyer George Hay repeatedly pointed out, most of the statements in the pamphlet were opinions, not facts, so it was impossible to prove whether they were true or false. Instead, he reminded the jurors of the little-known legal process known as jury nullification. If they believed the Sedition Act was unconstitutional, they could simply refuse to enforce it and return a not guilty verdict regardless of the evidence. The judge, who was an ardent Federalist, refused to hear it. He repeatedly interrupted Hay's closing argument, calling it disrespectful, irritating, and highly incorrect. In protest, Hay folded up his papers and silently walked out of the courtroom. With that, the defense rested. Callender was sentenced to nine months in jail and a $200 fine, worth over $4,000 today. But the legal defeat was a political victory. Papers across the country hailed the fallen writer as a heroic martyr of liberty, the champion of republicanism, and the favorite son of democracy. The court transcript was circulated as propaganda. The backlash was so severe the government never made another Sedition Act arrest. And Jefferson was ready to ride that wave of anger all the way to the ballot box. Voting had actually begun in the early spring of 1800. In many states, the electoral college delegates were chosen by the legislature. The public didn't actually vote for president at all. This meant that the state elections throughout 1800 were just as important as the general polls held in November. It was assumed that most of the New England states would go to the Federalists, giving John Adams a total of 52 electoral votes. Republicans would take the South, giving them exactly 52 votes as well. It all hinged on three swing states, Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. New York, with its 12 votes, was the most crucial. Their electors were chosen by the state legislature, which, at the beginning of 1800, was narrowly controlled by the Federalists. New York's state elections were held at the end of April, and if the Republicans didn't take the assembly, Jefferson's entire campaign was dead in the water. The problem? New York was Alexander Hamilton's home turf. If the Republicans wanted to compete, they would need a political miracle worker. Enter Aaron Burr. Senator Burr was a political snake. No one trusted him, few people liked him, but you wanted him on your side instead of against you. He did whatever it took to get the job done. And most importantly, he was a native New Yorker. In the early spring of 1800, Burr was brought on as the Republican Party's chief strategist. For the next two months, he turned his townhouse in the West Village into a 24-hour campaign headquarters. Workers slept on the living room floor and ate meals in his dining room. 
Every day, committees were sent out to canvass each neighborhood door to door, securing as many votes as possible. It was the first organized large-scale campaign in U.S. history. Burr assembled an absolute dream team for the Republican ticket. George Clinton, former six-term governor of New York, Samuel Osgood, a war hero who led a company of Minutemen at Lexington and Concord, General Horatio Gates, who won the Battle of Saratoga. Most of the candidates had no intention of actually serving on the assembly. They were elderly and long retired from public life. But they all agreed that if they were elected, they'd at least show up and vote for presidential electors in the fall. It was a cynical gambit, but it worked. The Republican candidates were so popular, voters came out in droves to support them. By the time polls closed at midnight on May 1st, the results were clear. The Republicans had taken the assembly, and with it, Jefferson had taken New York's 12 electoral votes. As a reward for his efforts, Burr was tapped as his running mate. But the Federalists weren't ready to surrender yet. In the first week of May, Hamilton called his allies together to discuss their options. Without New York, the only way the Federalists could win was by tearing votes away from Jefferson in the southern states. For that, they tapped Charles Coatsworth Pinckney as vice president. He was a slave-owning, plantation-running South Carolinian with major name recognition in the South. And he was unfalteringly loyal to Hamilton. The problem with the Electoral College was that there was no distinction on the ballot between votes for president or vice president. Each elector could cast two votes. Whoever got the most votes was president, and the runner-up was VP. It was up to each party to coordinate their electors so the presidential pick received exactly one more vote than their running mate. One elector would have to throw away a vote on a write-in candidate, and everyone else had to toe the party line. This took some manhandling. Political parties were a new invention, and some of the electors didn't feel bound to support the official ticket. If one single person went rogue or made a mistake, the other side's candidate could become VP. This was how Jefferson had ended up serving under Adams. To prevent that from happening again, Hamilton told the Federalist electors not to throw away one of their votes. The worst case scenario was that Adams and Charles Pinckney would tie and they'd have to course correct in the runoff. The best case scenario was that South Carolina's electors would vote for their favorite son, Pinckney, but refuse to vote for the northerner, Adams. Without specific instructions to stop this from happening, Pinckney would almost inevitably end up edging ahead and beating out Adams for president. When Jefferson found out what the Federalists were up to, he called it a hocus-pocus maneuver. Adams called it treason. On May 7th, the tensions finally boiled over in a cabinet meeting. Adams was now fully convinced that his cabinet was taking their orders from Hamilton, which was actually true. He was also convinced Hamilton had intentionally sabotaged the New York election to spite him, which was only half true. 
Adams laid into his Secretary of War, James McHenry, dressing him down for his incompetence and disloyalty. Then he spent some time railing against Hamilton, calling him a bastard and a man devoid of every moral principle. If Adams couldn't win the election, he promised he'd tear the party to shreds so that Hamilton's candidate couldn't win either. He concluded, Jefferson is an infinitely better man, a wiser one, I am sure. James McHenry was summarily fired. Three days later, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering was fired too. The Treasury Secretary, Oliver Walcott, stayed on, but in private, he joined the others in urging the Federalists not to re-elect Adams. As far as they were concerned, the man had officially lost his mind. And it was only May. Throughout the summer of 1800, the chaos only escalated. In a last-ditch effort to shore up votes in Virginia, the Federalists ran on what they called the American Republican Ticket. This reeled in some voters who meant to support the regular Republican ticket. And just in case that wasn't enough, they nominated an assembly candidate with the exact same first and last name as one of the Republican choices. Maryland held its state elections in October, and the Federalists promised that if they took control of the legislature, they'd change the state's election laws to a legislative appointment instead of a district vote, ensuring that all the state's electors would go to the Federalists. Getting rid of the right to vote turned out to be a really unpopular campaign promise. It gave the Republicans a chance to paint their rivals as corrupt and undemocratic. The Federalists shot back by pointing out the hypocrisy of the Southern Republicans, preaching liberty and equality while still advocating for slavery. One article read, he who affects to be a Democrat and is at the same time an owner of slaves is a devil incarnate. Democracy, therefore, in Virginia is like virtue in hell. As autumn closed in, it looked like the election would be a tight one. Then, at the last minute, Jefferson got an unexpected boost from Alexander Hamilton, who continued to be his own worst enemy. On October 24th, Hamilton published a 54-page tirade tearing apart John Adams, his own party's candidate. Railing against Adams' disgusting egotism and ungovernable temper, he urged the Federalists to vote for Charles Pinckney instead, or failing that, to vote for Jefferson. He concluded, if we must have an enemy at the head of the government, let it be one whom we can oppose and for whom we are not responsible. Just like that, Adams was done. Going into the general elections in November, there were two likely outcomes. Jefferson would win with Aaron Burr as his VP, or Pinckney would win, and no one had any idea who would come in second. On December 3, 1800, the Electoral College finally convened in Washington, D.C. The electors cast their votes and sealed them in an envelope to be opened in February as mandated in the Constitution. Vice President Jefferson personally unsealed the envelope before the Senate on February 11th. 
when the votes were finally tallied, it was a tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. The race will continue right after this. Now back to the story. In 1800, coordinating the Electoral College was a delicate balancing act. The presidential pick had to receive exactly one more vote than their running mate, which meant that exactly one elector had to throw away one vote for a random name. Thomas Jefferson had never once asked his campaign manager, James Madison, whether the proper arrangements had been made. He didn't have to ask. The Republican Party was a well-oiled machine. They obviously had this under control. Then the vote came back. It was a tie. As it turned out, Madison had decided not to handle the electors, and without any instructions, they had all made a pact to vote equally for both Jefferson and Burr. In the event of a tie, the House of Representatives chooses between the top two candidates. At this point, any reasonable running mate would acknowledge the error and publicly urge the House to vote for the actual presidential candidate. But Jefferson hadn't chosen a reasonable running mate. He'd chosen Aaron Burr. When the Republicans checked in to make sure that Burr would step aside, he replied that no, he definitely would not. If the House decided they wanted a President Burr, that was their own business. The Federalists had a good reason to vote for Burr. When a tiebreaker goes to the House, each state is given one vote, and the representatives from that state have to make their choice collectively. At the time, there were 16 states. Eight of them had a majority of Republicans in the House, six were majority Federalists, and two were evenly split. If the Federalists all held out for Burr, Jefferson would never win the nine votes he needed for a majority. And if they were still deadlocked when the current term expired on March 4th, Congress had the power to appoint basically anyone they wanted to fill the vacant presidency. Or even better, if the Federalists could win over a few Republicans, they could actually elect Burr, a man with the political backbone of a jellyfish. As one Federalist summed it up, Burr is not a Democrat. He is not a declared infidel. He is not attached to any foreign nation, and his selfishness will prevent his ever being so. And most importantly, since he turned his coat on the Republicans, the only way he could govern was by working with the Federalists. When the House reconvened on February 11, 1801, it only took a few minutes for the votes to be tallied. Eight states for Jefferson, six for Burr, two deadlocked. No winner. They took another vote immediately, hoping someone might change their mind. But once again, eight for Jefferson, six for Burr, two deadlocked. They tried again, and again, and again. The 19th ballot of the day was taken at three in the morning, and still no one budged. They were back again at noon the next day, and the next, and the next. Finally, after four days of stalemate, Jefferson got an assist from, once again, Alexander Hamilton. 
Hamilton had been writing constant letters to the Federalist congressmen, laying out his priorities. His biggest enemies were himself, Adams, Burr, and Jefferson, in that order. Adams was out of the picture already, crisis averted there. Striking any sort of deal with Burr was useless since Burr had never kept a promise in his life. But Jefferson was a man of his word. And if they played their cards carefully and strung the vote along for long enough, Jefferson might agree to some concessions in exchange for an end to the gridlock. The main target of Hamilton's campaign was James Bayard, the only representative from Delaware. The state's vote, and ultimately the entire election, rested solely in the hands of the inexperienced 33-year-old congressman. On February 15th, with barely two weeks to go until Inauguration Day, Bayard finally broke. He quietly offered up a bargain. If Jefferson accepted a list of political demands, he would abstain from voting. And with only 15 states in play instead of 16, Jefferson's eight votes would be enough for a majority. All Bayard asked for were three small concessions. Leave Hamilton's financial system in place, maintain funding for the naval force, and promise not to purge all the Federalist officials from the government. Jefferson took the deal. At noon on February 17, 1801, the House held its 36th vote in seven days. Delaware abstained. In solidarity with Bayard, the Federalists in Maryland, Vermont, and South Carolina abstained too. Thomas Jefferson would be the third president of the United States. At 4 a.m. on March 4, 1801, John Adams left the White House for the last time. Once he arrived home at his farm in Quincy, Massachusetts, he wrote Jefferson a letter of congratulations and well wishes. Jefferson didn't respond. After taking office, Jefferson made good on his secret promises to the Federalists. But for the rest of his life, he publicly denied making any deal in exchange for the presidency. He also denied any association with James Thompson Callender, who'd been released from prison right before the inauguration. Apparently, the journalist was under the impression that in exchange for his political martyrdom, he'd be appointed postmaster of Richmond. But now Jefferson told him it would be too controversial to give him a federal position. That was a mistake. Callender went back to Richmond, opened up his own newspaper, and ran with the story that the noble-minded new president had paid him to slander John Adams during the election. Jefferson strongly denied it, even after Callender published his letters as proof. So in September 1802, Callender upped the ante with an even bigger story. Jefferson had fathered several children with one of his slaves, a woman named Sally Hemings. The children all lived in slavery on his plantation in Virginia. He got a few of the details wrong, but the basic story has been confirmed as true over centuries of research. In response, 
Jefferson never said a word. No denial, no comment. As for Calendar, in July of 1803, he was found dead in three feet of water in a river outside Richmond. Despite the highly suspicious timing, it was deemed a suicide and never investigated further. With Calendar out of the way, there was only one more problem to tackle, the Electoral College. By the end of 1803, Congress had passed the 12th Amendment, which allows designations between electoral votes for president and vice president. A catastrophe like the Jefferson-Burr tie would never happen again. During his painfully awkward four years as vice president, Burr was a persona non grata in the White House. After his steal-the-election gambit and the constitutional amendment he inspired, it seemed like Burr's reputation couldn't possibly get worse. But then, in July 1804, he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. It was a natural end to the long rivalry between two of the most reckless and short-sighted men in politics. With murder charges pending in New York, Burr fled back to Washington, D.C. and served out the rest of his term as vice president. But when Jefferson mounted his re-election campaign that fall, Burr was not on the ticket. Impressively, Jefferson weathered all the storms. Despite the rumors, scandals, and murderous vice president, he was re-elected by a landslide in 1804 with the highest margin of victory in U.S. history. This was partly because the Federalist Party had completely imploded. The 1800 election had destroyed John Adams' career, and after Hamilton's unceremonious death at the end of the vice president's gun, the party was left rudderless. The Federalists would never again hold the presidency. The two-party system had just barely been created, and it was already in flux. In the 1820s, the Republican Party split into the Democrats and the Whigs. A few decades later, the Whig Party collapsed and was replaced by a new party called the Republicans. The names and ideologies change, but every new election followed the precedent set in 1800. Organized political parties, nationwide caucuses where candidates are chosen, and closed-door meetings where the real deals are hashed out. Active campaigns complete with speeches, rallies, door-to-door canvassing, and bitter, vicious propaganda. Next week, coming in at number 53 on our countdown, we'll look at a woman who used that corruption for her personal gain, Deborah Jean Palfrey, better known as the D.C. Madam. Palfrey's escort service had thousands of high-level officials on its payroll, from senators to Pentagon advisors to the Deputy Secretary of State. In April 2008, Palfrey was convicted of racketeering and money laundering, and two weeks later, she was found dead. The police are firm in saying that her death was a suicide by hanging. But as more information about her client list came to light, Some speculated that she was murdered to cover up an even more damaging scandal. 
Thanks for listening to Political Scandals. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler and Carly Madden. This episode of Political Scandals is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>